So let's read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. I'm really excited to be jumping into the book of Titus. For me, Titus has always kind of been uh, this small book at the end of the New Testament. And I know it has some great passages around what the gospel is and a really good passage on leadership. But apart from that, I don't think I've really dug deep into Titus um, like we are over the next four weeks. And I'm finding as we've dug into Titus that there's so much more to this punchy book at the end of the New Testament. It's a letter written, as you see there in verse one, it's a letter written to the, by the Apostle Paul to Titus, his true son in the faith, as he calls him in verse four. And it's written after the, the churches in Crete had already been planted, which I actually think likely happened between Paul's first imprisonment in Rome at the end of the book of Acts and before his second imprisonment and subsequent execution around the early 60s AD in the first century. But it's also a letter written, not just to Titus, it's a letter written to the whole uh, churches in Crete. So Paul finishes the letter by saying, grace be with yous all. So this is a letter written to Titus for him to act on the authority of the apostle Paul but it's also for all of God's people as we listen in. And Paul writes his letter, just have a look in chapter one, verse five. He writes his letter to encourage Titus to put in order what they had left unfinished there in Crete. Now, what does it mean to put things in order? Well, at the end of the letter, Paul writes our people, the churches, they must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Putting things in order looks like bringing about such a transformation within individuals and such transformation in a community that people would devote themselves to doing what is good. Titus is actually all about what makes the good life. That's why we've called it the good life. Over and over again, all throughout the letter, Paul is encouraging Titus and the churches in Crete to be on about the good life, to love what is good, to teach what is good, to be eager to do what is good. This is a letter all about the good life. And if you know anything about first century Crete, you will know that for Titus, this is nearly mission impossible. Roman Crete was an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, probably the length from about Newey to Tamworth long. And it's this beautiful, island paradise. As I've been uh, thinking about Crete and learning about Crete, I've had this just this immense desire to, I looked at flights last night of how much it would be go to visit there. It's about a thousand dollars return. But because of its placement in the middle of the Mediterranean, it was in the middle of the Roman Empire's trade routes. And so people would come and have fun on their way to another destination and then they would rack off. And it was this place that actually had an international reputation. Across the Roman Empire, 
to be called a Cretan, to come from Crete or to be labeled a Cretan was the same as being called a liar. How is that for a reputation? Where are you from? I'm Cretan. You're a liar. In verse uh, 12 of chapter one, Paul quotes Epimenides, this uh, Cretan prophet. He says, one of Cretan's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. How's that for a reputation? And it's interesting that Cretans, one of Cretan's own says this because he says they're always liars. So is this guy telling the truth or is he lying? What's going on there? But is it any wonder they were like this given the gods that they worshipped? See, among the false gods of Greek mythology, Zeus, the father of those gods, was said to be born on the island of Crete. And he was celebrated there. He was celebrated as this God who would lie and manipulate. He was pleasure-seeking and womanizing. He was a God that they worshipped. And so like the God we worship, like the people we become. The good life, according to Cretans, was the pursuit of pleasure without limits, free from the shackles of social norms and rules. To be a Cretan was to be true to yourself, focused on your pleasure, to live as you saw fit, to live like you only live once, to live for today. Mission impossible, to see transformation, to put in order the things they had left unfinished. How do you transform a community like that? But friends, are we any different today? Newey and Lake Mac, it's filled with pockets of Cretan paradise. Sydneysiders and others flock to Newey and Lake Mac for the relaxed coastal lifestyle and the diverse nightlife and culture as it's promoted. National Geographic said that the lifestyle in Newcastle, it is unbeatable. Surfing, fishing, coffee shops, music, sports, this is living, Gary. Newey and Lake Mac is a place where you can work hard to come and play harder. Or come here after you've worked hard and to put your feet up into retirement to enjoy the good life. And the popular preachers of our culture, across our Western culture, teach us to pursue pleasure and happiness as our ultimate goal as well. And you might think, well, Newcastle Lake Mac, it still doesn't quite sound as bad as this, as, you know, be called a bunch of liars or wild beasts. But if you want to see Newcastle and Lake Mac at its best, all you have to do is head down Ping Street on 2am on a Sunday morning. I remember having um, my, a saying that my mates and I used to use as I went to uni of Newcastle as a non-Christian, we would go out on the town and we would always say, no remorse. Whatever debauchery we got up to the night before, we would have no remorse when we woke up the next morning. How do you transform a person like that? How do you transform a culture like Crete or like Newey and Lake Mac? It seems like mission impossible. Paul writes this letter to Titus, to the church in Crete and to the churches today across the world in Newey and Lake Mac to teach us what makes the good life? A life of transformation. So what makes the good life? Well, the answer is godliness. So you have a look at what Paul says in verse one. 
He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, here's his mission, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul's going to go on throughout this letter to Titus and Crete to show us that the good life it is found in godly living. Not being an angry person or violent or addicted to alcohol or a slanderer or someone who is unfaithful to their spouse, but we'll see godliness is seen in sacrificial love, being someone who's worthy of respect, someone who's trustworthy, who we can put our trust in, ready to do what is good for the sake of others, not just themselves. But notice here in verse 1, what leads to the good life of godliness? See, this is a major theme that we're going to see through all parts of Paul's letter here. Paul says it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's truth that produces or catalyzes the good life of godliness. But this is really countercultural to how we operate in our Western culture. See, psychology studies have shown that when it comes to big decisions in our life or matters of morality or religion, the way we tend to operate is that our desires and behavior often comes first and then strategic belief or reasoning and knowledge comes second to justify the actions that we've already done. So I really have this desire to move and take this promotion, it's gonna be good for me and all that. And so then my desires begin and then the reasoning overflows to justify the pursuit of those desires. Aldous Huxley, who wrote um, a book in the mid 20th century called Brave New World, which some of, some of you might remember studying um, as part of English, I had to study it as part of English. He was an atheist and he says this really interesting comment about why he pursued atheism. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in this world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics or truth. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. Do you see the essence of what he says there? I wanted to believe in meaninglessness. I wanted to have those reasons because it justified my motives the desires I started with, my behavior of sexual freedom and the pursuit of pleasure without limits. They were my desires and motives that began and then came my beliefs to justify my actions. And friends, we all do this or have done this with Christianity as well. I don't want my life 
to change. I, my desire as I come to Christianity, I don't want to have to you know, live for Jesus. I want to live for myself. I don't want people to think I'm one of those weird Christians now. They're the desires and thoughts that we might have. And so to justify our motives and desires to turn away from God, we look for excuses and reasoning that on the surface kind of sounds good. You know, why are Christians always such hypocrites? Oh, there's no way I'll ever look into Christianity. I'll just write it off and justify it away. Or why does a good God allow so much suffering? How can a good God send people to hell, write it off and allow myself to justify the desires and motives I want to live out in my life? And this is exactly what the Cretans were doing as well. They could choose whatever God their desires wanted on that particular day across the Greek gods, or they could choose between different Greek philosophies, whatever they wanted to do in order to pursue this wild living, this, this pursuit of pleasure and freedom without any limits. But there's actually another problem that was going on in Crete that this knowledge of the truth leads to godliness helps us to think about. So within the churches, a false teaching had actually crept in. In chapter 110, if you look down there, Paul refers to the, the teachers of this teaching as the circumcision group. They are a group that we see in verse 14 on about Jewish myths. Now, this is likely what, would, what we've seen happen in other churches in Galatia and Ephesus and in, in the early church where false teachers, their answer to what makes the good life, their answer to what would transform and clean up a community in Crete was works-based salvation. Get circumcised, cut yourself off from the world, do all these purification rites, obey this special day and the Sabbath, keep yourself clean and away from the Gentiles. That was the good life. Your good works could then earn you salvation with God. And so it was this achievement mentality. Do this to earn this. Be disciplined, rule-based, self-controlled. And you'll get personal happiness and achievement if you do that. This is the way every other religion other than Christianity works. And it's not just religion that preaches this, but modern day preachers teach this as well. They'll teach 12 rules for life to bring order into the chaos of this world. Or my favorite actor, Denzel Washington. So discipline, hard work is what leads to achievement and your goals. And so if freedom without limits isn't your cup of tea on one end to pursue personal happiness, then maybe you're up the other end where self-discipline and hard work and achievement and success is the idol that you pursue for personal happiness. In Titus, Paul says that these lies lead to ungodliness. This false teaching will actually be destructive for your life. It's no better than freedom without limits. It's not going to actually transform you from the inside out. In verse 16, Paul says, These people, they claim to know God, to know the truth, but their actions and their behaviours actually deny God because it becomes more about them and their works than it does about God and his work within us. So Paul affirms truth leads to godliness. 
But the next question to ask is what truth leads to the good life of godliness? So I can tell you a truth right now that my name is Scott. Now that truth shouldn't be powerful for you. It shouldn't be changing you from the inside out. The truth that leads to godliness, it's not just any old truth, like water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. You can have that one for free. It has to be a foundational truth to the meaning of this world, to why we exist, to who we are and to who God is. And so what is that truth? Well, have a look at what Paul says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Here it is, the hope of eternal life. The truth that leads to the good life of godliness that transforms people from the inside out is the gospel truth, the hope of eternal life. A hope which is more than just a physical existence, a physical eternity, but the fullness of life, the good life which is available now through Jesus Christ and will climax when Jesus returns. Paul puts it this way in chapter 3 when he says, At one time, here is the truth, this gospel truth. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were slaves to ourselves. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, when Jesus came, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done. It wasn't a rules-based, control-based mentality, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Here is the gospel truth that leads to godliness. We were once enslaved to ourselves, our desires, our passions and our pleasures. We were enslaved to them in rebellion against the God of the universe, our creator, the one who known and has loved us. And because of his love and mercy, not because of anything good we've done, but because of Jesus' life, death and resurrection as he entered into this world, he saved us from ourselves. He saved us from God's wrath. And in return, we've been justified, declared right before God by his undeserving grace. And the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, he washes us. He's rebirthed us, we've been born again, and He's renewing us at this very moment. See, freedom without limits won't lead to the good life, but rules and good works on their own won't transform you from the inside out. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, leads us to the good life of godliness. This truth is not just merely some head knowledge. It's not just an academic kind of thing, like knowing some historical truths about Crete, but this truth is anchored in the very words of God himself to us. And these aren't just any words. These are words from the one true God who's brought us back 
into relationship with him when we trust in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us. Nothing is more important in this life than believing in this foundational truth. And Paul says, this is a trustworthy message. See, this hope we have in eternal life, it's not this uh, a hope that may not happen, like I hope the Jets might win on this, this weekend. It's a certain hope of eternal life. And so why? Why can we have such trust? Why can we have such assurance? Why can we have this certainty for eternity? Well, it's because gospel truth doesn't come from me. It's founded in who God is. So there's some big claims here that Paul makes about who God is. Have a look there in verse 2. The first one we see is, in the hope of eternal life, here's God's character, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Now, notice it doesn't say here God cannot lie, like some philosophical proposition or some hypothetical. No, God does not lie. He doesn't do it. That is his character. He never lies. Unlike the gods of Greece, unlike Zeus, who was celebrated for his deception, unlike any false god or idol that we put in place of the one true God, whether it's my happiness, lifestyle, works or achievements, all false gods will lie to us. They won't follow through on their promises to us. And this can be hard for us to get because no human does this. No human can actually follow through on their promises perfectly, but not the one true God. He is trustworthy and he promised this eternal life before the beginning of time. So he says, in the hope of eternal life, which is now now happening and will be fulfilled in the future, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time has now at its appointed season been brought to light. See, God's promise of eternal life now and into the future were made before time even existed. God is a God who is not only truthful, but he's a God who is sovereign and in control over time from eternity past to eternity future. And the God over time who exists from eternity to eternity has decided that now is the time in which he's chosen to bring the gospel to light. And we have further assurance that he's done this because Jesus appeared. He came into human history to show us and reveal to us who God is. So God, he's true. He's sovereign over time. And that means he's sovereign and in control over our salvation. You can't be brought into relationship with God without him choosing you. That's why Paul says in verse one, I'm a servant of God to further the faith of God's elect. To be elected is to be one of God's chosen people. So if you're a Christian, it is because God chose you before the beginning of time, before the creation of the universe, before you existed, God elected you to know him and love him. Friends, this is the doctrine of predestination. In love, 
Because of his purpose and his glory, he predestines all his people to eternal life. And it's a doctrine that we often wrestle with because if God chooses me, what choice do I have? And I remember feeling angsty about this uh, for a few years uh, as a young Christian until I understood, one, we still have a responsibility with all of this um, to, to put our trust in God. It's not like we're robots. We still have a responsible will in all this. But secondly, I'm never going to fully comprehend how God can fully choose us and we can be fully responsible and how those things go hand in hand. And it's okay not to get that fully because I'm not God. I'm not the creator. I'm a mere creature of his. But thank God that he is the one true, trustworthy, faithful God and our creator and I'm not. See, predestination, it actually affirms our inability to work our way to God or to choose God. Because of our sin, nothing within us wanted to or could reach out to God. We were helpless to do that. And so if we soften God's sovereignty in our salvation, which will actually lessen the reality of sin, say, oh no, there's parts within us that could have done it, so we're not actually sinful as we think. And if we lessen the reality of sin, then we lessen God's love and his grace that was poured out for us on the cross. And we lessen the power of the spirit at work in our lives because the emphasis of our salvation shifts more from God into us and my choice and my pursuit than God's election and his choice. See, this is where the image that we looked at there in chapter three of Titus of salvation as rebirth or being born again in the power of the Holy Spirit is really helpful. See, how much did you contribute to your physical birth when you were created and brought into this world? Before you were a twinkle in your mother's eye, your father's eye, how much did you consciously say, I'm going to come into this world, my name is going to be Scott or whatever your name is, and I'm going to be an awesome freckled ginger or however God's created you. We contributed nothing to our creation. It was all God. And it's the same for salvation. If God chooses to save you, he will. If God has chosen you to be his people, then you are his people for all eternity. He is a trustworthy God who will follow through on his promise. And so the doctrine of predestination, God's sovereignty, over the salvation of his people, oh, it should comfort us and reassure us because without it, the hope of eternal life wouldn't be certain. But our salvation rests on a God who does not lie, who promised our salvation before the beginning of time. Our salvation had nothing to do with who I am. In fact, it was despite of who I am as a sinner who could not reach out to him. And so therefore it has everything to do with God. Friends, this is the gospel truth, a truth that transforms you from the inside out. God in Jesus Christ has offers us salvation and it's a truth that flows out of God's character. A God who is trustworthy, who is true, a God who is sovereign over time and sovereign over salvation, which means to be a Christian, therefore, to believe in this truth is to be someone who is ongoingly transformed from the inside out to, because this truth 
leads to godliness. And Paul is a classic example of this, isn't it? Here is a man who went from persecuting and killing Christians to look at how he refers to himself at the start of verse one, a servant of God now. And the word for servant there is actually much more provocative than that. It's the word for slave. See, he's not his own anymore. As God's elect, as God's chosen one, he is now owned by God and used by God for the sake of his purposes to further the faith of God's people through preaching the gospel. And if you're a Christian, then this is true for you as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. That's who you are, Christian, Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. You belong to God. Do not become slaves of men or slaves of sin. You've been purchased by God. You are now his. Your life is not yours. It never was. You're either a slave to sin or others or a slave to God. And so if you're a Christian, you no longer live for yourself, but for him who has died and was raised. We live for him. And this is how the gospel truth produces godliness as we live for Jesus, not just as our savior, but also as our Lord. Godliness for many of us has become um, about good works or kind of this idea of just grim faced obedience. But that's not what we're talking about here. Godliness is connected to our relationship with God. It's living like Him. It's being devoted to Him and His works, living to please Him, to worship Him, to love Him with everything we've got, all empowered by His grace and Spirit at work in our lives. See, godliness is the fruit of the gospel, powerfully at work in our lives to make us more like Christ in the way we love and live in this world. And I wonder if right now for us as a church, this is a really critical moment for us to remember and reclaim godliness as such a high value and pursuit for the good life as God's people. So I've had a few conversations around church from all congregations actually, where after the last few years, people of lives have kind of been shaken to such a degree that... Um, We've lost stability and comfort and routine and we're trying to clutch back at all those things and pursue those things above all else that we've actually had less time for God in our lives and less time for each other to encourage each other to point people back to the gospel and pursue godliness. But friends, as a church, we need to remember here that Paul's encouraging us behaviour and our belief, they go hand in hand. Life and doctrine, they are inseparable. Practicing what we preach, we're a people to be devoted to the good life of godliness. How are you going in that at the moment? In pursuing godliness through the gospel. Because we need to keep remembering that, don't we? That this knowledge of truth entrusted and passed on through the preaching of the gospel is the fuel. It's the foundation through which godliness overflows. I was chatting with a couple recently who have been really struggling with purity with one another. 
Um, and I asked them, what, are, what do you think is the most critical thing you guys can be doing to encourage each other to pursue godliness here? And their initial responses were all kind of the, the good boundaries to put in place, to not be in a room together or to do this or to do that, to do this or to do that. And it was just this gentle reminder that the number one thing that will transform your life, the number one thing that will transform my life is to come back to the knowledge of truth, the truth of the gospel and to encourage each other in the gospel, what Jesus has done, who God is and who we are in light of his grace. Nothing in this life is more important than that. And that foundational truth is what fuels and transforms our life of godliness. Truth leads to godliness. It's the gospel truth that leads to the good life of godliness. And so how do we remember this? Almost, how do we keep passing this on as a community? Well, we need to keep remembering it's the gospel preached that leads to the good life of godliness. Paul says at the end in verse 3, Now his appointed season, God has brought to light the gospel through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. See, this really goes against that idea that you might hear around sometimes. We've got to preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Now you can adorn the gospel with good works, totally. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say that in chapter 2. You can make the message of the gospel attractive through godly living, but you can't preach the gospel with your good works. The gospel is truth. It's the good news. The gospel is fundamentally a message about who God is and what he has done and who we are in light of what he's done. And what he's continuing to do by his grace alone, it's a message that is to be proclaimed by his people. See, in the midst of Crete, an island so far gone, even in regards to worldly standards, the only hope for transformation of the people there, for transformation of the churches there, the only hope that we have to see 30,000 people saved for a start is the preaching of the gospel that leads to godliness. And so Paul, as he writes his letter to Titus, he's writing to pass on and entrust the teaching of the gospel to Titus. But in this letter, Titus then is also to pass it on as he establishes godly leaders in the church who are going to both encourage and teach the gospel to the flock, but also refute false teaching which leads to ungodliness. But more than that, through gospel preaching, there would be such a culture that happens in the church. As Paul goes on, as we're going to see in chapter 2, the preaching of the word as it comes to the flock through the appointed leaders, there's to be such a culture of teaching and trusting and encouraging the church that God's people would then horizontally teach and admonish one another in the church and then go out into the world to further the faith of God's elect. How are you going at doing this? How are you going with your brothers and sisters and just encouraging them, teaching and admonishing them, coming back to the gospel that transforms lives and leads to godliness? 
you know, as this week, as we've just had growth groups kick off at New Ian Lake Mac, as going deeper groups kick off, this is a really critical time after the two years we're coming out of as well to keep coming back to this central truth of the gospel that we never move on from. The gospel is the power to save. The preached gospel message is the power to save. And it's that preached gospel message that we teach and admonish one another in that also has the, the power through the work of the Spirit to transform our lives so that we can live godly lives and glorify our God. Be a people who yearn for that, who enact that and keep coming back to the centrality of the gospel truth. Let me pray we'll be a people who do that. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you are a God despite who we were, despite our disobedience and rebellion. In your love, you sent Jesus into this world so that at his first coming, at his first appearance, in his life and his death and his resurrection, you saved us from sin. You saved us from the wrath that we deserve as Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for that. And we thank you in light of your resurrection and Jesus' ascension that you sent your Holy Spirit into this world to wash us and to give us rebirth and ongoing renewal and transformation. Lord, we pray that in light of that, we will remember that we are your servants, that our life doesn't belong to you. Life's not about the pursuit primarily of our happiness or the selfish pursuit of my inner desires, but that life is now about living for you as our Lord and our Saviour. And we thank you that in that we receive eternal life, we receive the good life, we receive fulfilment and joy. Help us to be a people that remembers that this knowledge of the gospel, that this gospel truth is what leads to godliness. We thank you that you are a God who we can trust, that you are a God who has predestined your people before the beginning of time, that you are sovereign over those who you save. And we ask that as of your people, we would continue to pass on this gospel, that we continue to teach and admonish one another because we're a people who so value living like you for the sake of your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.